Hi, friends. Welcome to the All Season Podcast. Today, I have a very special guest, Dr. Andy Bass. Andy is a mental skills coach for the Pittsburgh Pirates. There are so many great pieces of information he shares in this episode, specifically on differential learning and how he gauges his success with his role. He also shares how he explores his own sense of creativity at work and how he integrates motor learning to enhance mental skills training for those with the Pirates. Please enjoy. Andy Bass, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Doing well, Sonny. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate uh, having you on today. Um, so to get the audience kind of caught up in about who you are, um, can you give me a little bit about your background again? Yeah, I'll try to make this in a nutshell for sake of brevity. Um, I played college baseball at Davidson, which is over in North Carolina. Uh, got my degrees in psychology and philosophy there. I was drafted by the Tampa Bay Rays in 2011. Um, was with them for barely a year. They, they released me. I got the yips pretty quickly in pro ball. Couldn't throw a strike. Uh, and that's kind of how I got into sports psychology. But I played really quickly as a free agent with the Chicago White Sox in 2012. And then in 2013, I enrolled at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville to get my master's in sports psych and motor behavior. And then I was also admitted when I finished my master's to get my doctorate working under Jeff Fairbrother there um, starting in 2015 finished my PhD. And two days after I was done in Knoxville, I was down in spring training working with the Pirates. And I've been a mental conditioning coordinator with them since 2018. Look at that. Just right back at the pro sports. Right back into, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Baseball just pulls you back in. Uh, that's really cool to hear. Um, so I think one of the things you told me before is that you got to be mentored by Bernie Holiday. <laughs> and for those that are not uh, or don't know as much in the sports psychology world and field, like Bernie is a huge name. Very much um, so. so how has that experience been for you to be mentored by someone who's been in the field for so long? It's really not an understatement to say that Bernie has changed my life, um, not just philosophically, but I wouldn't be here without Bernie. Um, and yeah, those that don't really kind of know the sports psych world, Bernie is, if you go to any sports psych conference or circle, you can't, if you're with Bernie, Dr. Holiday, you can't go five feet without somebody trying to get his attention. He's like the Elvis and Beatles wrapped into one for sports psych conferences. Um, so I met him in 2015 uh, at, at ASP at a sports psych conference. He was there looking for interns for the Pirates, people that had a background in motor learning, a friend of a friend told him about me that I played pro ball. We got to talking. And for the next few years, I was just politely annoying, trying to be around the Pirates as much as I could. Uh, so, yeah, Bernie is the reason I'm with the Pirates. As far as how he's being mentored under him, he's truly one of the most giving mentors I've been around. And I've, had, I've gotten a chance to learn from some incredible people like Dr. Jeff Fairbrother at Tennessee. Uh, Bernie is very open about how he collaborates. His, his feedback is the thing that I think really sticks out to me the most. Um, I've never, he is giving me some really constructive criticism, but I've never taken it as criticism. The way that he is open and vulnerable about himself allows the feedback that he gives me uh, to be just that much more palatable. Um, I, I can give you an instance of just how how great he is at giving feedback. We do, we call it the one up, one down with the, the Pirates MC team. If we do a presentation, 
if we are talking in front of a group, we'll all get together afterwards, the mental conditioning team, and we'll give each other one thing we thought went well and one thing we thought could get better. And it's always the things that he tells me that I could get better at that stick out to me the most. Um, so one time we were supposed to be out in the field working on counseling skills, our soft skills. And he noticed that whenever somebody was going through a difficult time, the first words out of my mouth tended to be, wow, I'm sorry about that. And the way that he approached it to me was he said, I know that your heart is in the right place, but sometimes when we say I'm sorry immediately when somebody says, I'm going through a hard time with my partner or I'm really struggling on the field, that I'm sorry can almost come off as patronizing, as in, well, I'm doing well over here. I'm good. I'm sorry that you're going through this. But the way that he brought that up to me, because something like that can be very personal, it was just like, wow, that makes total sense. I appreciate you telling me that. And it's the way that he goes about creating vulnerability with himself that makes it that much easier for me to receive that feedback from him. Yeah, it's it seems like he does a really great job of making sure that you receive it in mm -hmm. the best way. Right. Um, yes. And everybody, yeah, takes feedback a little bit differently. But to make sure that someone can uh, take it, receive it, and learn from it is, is pretty difficult. It is. And one thing that makes it a lot easier with him is he requests, demands feedback about himself. And from coaches, from mental conditioning, from those in the team, players, staff, and he will demand that they give him a one down or a one forward because <laughs> they'll say, oh, Bernie, your, your presentation was awesome. And 100% of the time, his presentation is awesome. Uh, they'll say, oh, I don't really have anything for you, like a down or a forward. And he'll say, no, you have to find something. So the fact that he's so open about wanting that feedback, that critical feedback for himself just makes it easier when you receive it from him, I think. That's pretty gangster. That's um, pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> is that difficult? Because he's been in the field for 10 years or so. I'm sure it's pretty hard to give like real constructive feedback to someone like Bernie. It, at first, for me, especially when I was just kind of a <laughs> an, it, quote unquote intern with the Pirates, it was my, my forwards or my downs would be very innocuous, very superficial things. But you know, Bernie's okay with that. He understands that there is, you know, he knows who he is, even though he doesn't act like that. Um, but he, his humility comes out over time to where you just feel comfortable sharing your feedback with him and what you thought his presentation was like. And so, yes, at first, like anything, um, it was difficult for me as it is for other people, but he, he doesn't push people beyond their limit. I think he, when he first met me, I saw him do a presentation. He asked for a one up, one down. My one down was not that great. Like I said, it was something very innocuous. And he, he really didn't push me. He said, okay, thank you. I appreciate that. But then as I got to know him more, he would start to push me a little more. So he, he knows exactly where that line is of making somebody uncomfortable, but not feel awkward. And I think that's what he does a really great job with. Yeah, I think the whole feedback part is really important in general, in any work setting. So. Um... For us, we do the same thing, except it's called, you know, sustain and improve. Right? Oh, awesome. So what, yes. are you, what are you keeping that's doing really well? And what can you improve upon? Um, and sometimes I, I still definitely have trouble finding how other people can improve really well, uh, if they are doing really well, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So how long have you been with the pirate so far? Um 2018, I started kind of mid-year, uh, May 4th, I think, was my first day on the job. So this would technically be the, the start of my third full season. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. um, so at work, are you seeking a certain feeling that, um, I guess, 
that brings you happiness or helps you be your best, like makes you feel present, alive. Um, I don't know what the end of that feeling is, but mm -hmm. I'm just curious. Are you, are you seeking something? Yeah, I think the feeling that I'm seeking is probably something on a more holistic view, a 30,000 foot view when it comes to mental skills and motor learning. It's when the words that we use in either sports side for motor learning, you start to hear players and coaches use that language. Um, when you, the integration, I think is the feeling that I'm, I guess you call it that I'm chasing where I'm just a part of the everyday experience of a ball player and of a coach. Um, when we talk about visualization, that is no different than a coach talking about a hitter that needs to stay on his backside more. And then when myself or the mental conditioning team, Dr. Holiday, Dr. Morales and Tyson Holt, the four of us, when we can just become part of the day and we're not an add on and we're not a supplement, uh, we are, are truly part of the holistic view of baseball. I think that's the feeling that I'm chasing. And that's not just how they use language and how they integrate mental skills. It's how we're brought in uh, either in the locker room, um, on field, during coaching meetings. So when we're just organically inherent in the process, for me, that's the ultimate feeling. That's a very thoughtful answer. I, <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, and that seems... Um, really logical to me uh if you you know if you take someone who's new to a certain community um and they start to assimilate all the terminology that the group is using they will feel like they have the feeling of in mm -hmm. um and i feel like that's kind of what you're saying um in a sense absolutely and you know with within anything uh but a particular sport like baseball that is so mired in tradition to start to see these, you would call, let's call them evidence-based practices being implemented. It, it's, it's fantastic. And it speaks a lot to the way that we are viewing sport now in, you know, in the contemporary, uh, contemporary age, how coaches are coaching, how players are playing the fact that, yeah, we're, we're ready and re willing to look for science and evidence-based practices to make us better. And I think that just shows the open-mindedness of the generations to come. Yeah, and I think something um, that I'm thinking of on the top of my head is evidence-based practices are, um, I want to say, almost traditional, right? They've been known for a long time mm -hmm. and, and passed down. Um, so where do you find the creativity in terms of how to apply more mental skills to your athletes? Yeah, now I'll actually kind of use this opportunity to bring maybe the motor learning aspects into it uh, because the... The, the training in Tennessee, there was this, this integration of motor learning and sports psychology, so skill acquisition with the mental skills. And um, I think we can use these motor learning methods to enhance mentality while at the same time formally training people in mental skills. So if we have a five-minute visual or we have a five-minute mindfulness session at the beginning of the day where we're uh, setting an intention and we're working on our deep breathing, and then we go out into the field, and perhaps a player is going through a slump. Perhaps a batter is, you know, they're, they're one for 17 in their last few games and they're just really in their own head. Well, now we talk about mindfulness and a deep breath. Awesome. Now the athlete has that intention. Now they're in the cage and they're really starting to tinker. They're, you know, because they're in a slump, they're trying to get out of it. They're starting to get very internally focused. And we know that when we think about an internal focus cue, it tends to block our movement. 
Well, as the coach, we can perhaps engage them in a form of differential learning. So variability training, we know we cannot repeat a movement pattern. So maybe asking that player, hey, just the next 10 swings, um, I want you to swing from a different stance each time. Uh, So have your feet, you know, parallel, have your feet maybe more staggered, just try something different each time and just notice where your mind goes. Now, the reason that this can be so impactful is differential learning variation uh, has actually been shown to produce the same electrical signals that are associated with mindfulness. Uh, those two signals are alpha and theta. So as the athlete engages in this variation, they are in a state of mindfulness that engages neuroplasticity, which is, as we spoke about before practice, hey, you are doing mindfulness here, focus on that breath. And when we engage in this variation training, our front part of our brain kind of shuts down a little bit. So this athlete's going through a slump. We want them to be mindful in the present moment, engage in this variability training. Well, guess what? Their their mind is going to dim a little bit. They're going to technically get out of their own head. And so it's creative things like that where we can bring in the skill acquisition and mental skill work of we worked on mindfulness. This is something you can do in between pitches, take that breath, be where your feet are. And as a coach, add this variability into your training we are inherently going to help athletes get out of their own head. Okay. I want to do a check on learning for myself here. Um, so I, I was going to get into differential learning in a little bit. Okay. Uh, we're going to hit it now. All so right. uh, you're saying if we are in a state of mindfulness, there's a level of, you know, uh, the brain waves that we activate mm-hmm. and that is almost um mimicked when we have differential learning so if we are forced into differential learning Mm -hmm. we activate the same wavelengths as if you were doing mindfulness training correct and that helps you uh, get out of your head and perform those actions absolutely and then you know as we look into differential learning as well so yes we're getting these this awesome mindfulness practice neuroplasticity our amygdala is calming down And a lot of the great science that's coming out from motor learning is showing that, well, when we engage in differential learning, we acquire skill that much faster and we acquire it more implicitly. Uh, We don't really know much about the movement. So now that we've engaged in this more implicit learning practice, well, when we think about reinvestment theory of choking, well, now we're less likely to choke because we've learned the movements implicitly rather than explicitly as being told to them with a lot of verbal cues. Wait, why does explicit learning um, not work as well as implicit learning in preventing something like choking? Sure, great, great question. I should have done a little more work on the front end there, so I appreciate that. Um, so we have this idea that one of the common theories of choking is called reinvestment theory. It was uh, created by or it was came up with by uh, Rich Masters several many years ago. And his thought was that when pressure builds, in game, uh, sunny in the military, when it's actually life and death, um, we tend to reinvest in the explicit knowledge that we've acquired about a skill. So if I'm a baseball player and I have been taught a lot by coaches to make sure your elbow does this, make sure your hips move this way, make sure your hands go down, well, that's a lot of internal cues. That's this explicit knowledge that this athlete or this soldier has acquired about the skill. Now when the pressure builds, they reinvest in that explicit knowledge. And if that explicit knowledge tends to be very internal and tends to be very blocky, that's what the movement's gonna be like when the pressure builds. 
uh, now on the flip side, when we engage in more of the implicit learning, so the drill or the constraint or the variation training is providing pretty much all the information to the athlete. The coach is maybe they're providing an external cue every once in a while, but they're not talking all the time, which we know coaches need to not any instructor, which better to give less feedback than more. But when the drill is providing the proprioceptive feedback, you know, the, it's more of the vestibular system working than the prefrontal cortex working. Now we've acquired implicit knowledge. It, it'd be like, Sonny, if I were to ask you, how do you ride a bicycle? It'd be pretty hard for you to like actually describe to me how to ride a bicycle because you've learned that implicitly. You hopped on and you figured out how to do it through trial and error. And when we have that implicit learning, that implicit knowledge, there's no explicit cues to reinvest in when the pressure is on. So now choking is less likely. It's not to say that it can't happen. We're just giving the athlete a better chance to succeed by trying to train more implicitly. Hmm. That is very interesting. And I'm trying to wrap my head around. It's a lot. It's still, it's still a lot of gunk in my head that I'm trying to solve too, or try to wrap my head around, but it's very interesting when you have the motor learning that can influence the psychological aspects and vice versa, which is why I think is so fascinating. Yeah, I feel like if I was a pro athlete and uh, I was in a high pressure situation, I would, if I can rely more on my, like my gut feeling, mm-hmm. my understanding of knowing how to move rather than the external cue you're talking about, I'm more likely to perform in a more fluid way. Exactly. Because it's, right. it's very much based on this. We can debate what the definition of automaticity is, but if we train implicitly, where we're not getting the coaches and speaking a lot, we're not giving them a lot of internal cues about how their body is moving and we're letting the drill speak more for us, then yeah, the athlete is going to be more fluid. And going back to what we discussed earlier with the differential learning, well, when we train this way too, now their minds have grown because this type of learning enhances neuroplasticity. Our brain grows more from this type of training than it does from a coach simply speaking to us for an hour and a half. Yeah, that's fascinating. And that's really almost innovative into the way we talk to athletes in terms of performance. Right. Um, so differential learning that you're talking about, um, you know, I, I read somewhere it's we want to um, think differently about how um, we learn skills, right? So we, we were saying like, you know, um, how we acquire physical and mental skills is almost backwards, um, in terms of education and in sport Mm -hmm. and that we teach, um, educators and coaches how to teach, but we don't really, you know, focus so much on how they learn. Um, Yes, exactly. Exactly. Can you touch up on that? Yes. And it's that, and this is another Dr. Holiday ism. Um, we, we judge ourselves by our intentions, but others by their actions. So, you know, I have the best intention in the world, but if I hurt your feelings, I still hurt your feelings. My action is that I hurt your feelings. And so bringing that to coaching, when we talk about how we need to change, how we teach, how we instruct with the understanding that coaches, teachers, um, people in the military, that the intention is not to be a bad teacher. The intention isn't to go against science. The intention is to get people better. Um, we're just now, the science is just starting to catch up with this. But I I do think that for a long time, we've been really focused on, hey, how are we teaching? How are we instructing? And that's fantastic. There absolutely needs to be a part of the equation that's dedicated toward that. But I don't think that we spend a lot of time on how people learn, um, which 
just in general, if we're focused on how an individual learns, then now we're individualizing it. And we know that that's better than this broad brush generalization of, hey, we're all going to learn this one way. But a lot of these motor learning and sports site concepts are coming out because we've been more focused on the learning, the acquiring of a skill rather than the teaching of a skill. And I think if we can start to have that paradigm shift or just that paradigm flip, we may start to see, you know, this a nice spike in performance, be it in the military and the educational system or the sports system, because now we're truly focused on a learning environment rather than the coaching environment. Hmm. Um, I agree with that. And I, and I think when we, a lot of education programs, a lot of sport programs, they're in a train, the trainer model, right? Mm -hmm. And that is really focused on, you know, educating someone to give information to another person, which is the learner. Um, And the intent of that is, you know, how can you effectively give information in a clear way? But like you're saying, we don't really focus on what's on the receiving end unless it's just test scores. Um, <laughs> so I, I get what you're saying. And I, and I think that's really important. Do you have, um, do you know of anyone who's working on that at the moment? Um, there's several of my colleagues that I've worked with um, that are in academia now. Um, there's a professor, Dr. Kevin Becker. He's at Texas Women's University. He's really interested in learning. And it's, it, it's pretty much you know, any professor you see in motor learning, you will see the interest in the learning system. And I think what you just, uh, so Dr. Kevin Becker, Dr. Jeff Fairbrother, um, these are all people, they're, they're highly published on Google Scholar, if anybody's interested in going down that rabbit hole. Um, but what you just said was really interesting about this train the trainer model. And that makes a lot of sense because we have, you know, a lot less trainers than we do students. And so we're trying to get the most bang for our buck. But you said that we're trying to teach people to give information. And I always heard this this analogy of, well, people aren't banks. And what I mean by that is if you get a lot of money and you just put it in a bank, you know, you think about it and, you know, it grows, it invests, you get a percentage, blah, blah, blah. You just put money, put money, put money in. People aren't like that when it comes to teaching and information. Just pushing information into people is not the key to success, unlike just putting money into a bank and it's there and it grows. Um, there needs to be less of this idea of I'm a coach and I'm going to teach you what to do. And there needs to be more of I'm a coach and I want to learn with you because I want to learn how you learn. I don't want you to learn how I coach. Um, I'll kind of wrap this diatribe up here. The, the idea of a coach came from a stage coach. So if I hopped in a stage coach and told the driver, take me five miles west and he took me three miles north because that's where he thought I should go you're a really bad stagecoach driver. And so I think flipping that idea of as a coach, it shouldn't be where do I think you need to go? It's, hey, let's create a conversation where we find out where you want to go. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, this makes a ton of sense. Uh, I want to play a little devil's advocate here. And if I were on uh, a different side of this, maybe conversation, I would say, well, um, we focus so much on train a trainer model because we want performance results and those are based on t- statistics. Mm-hmm. So based on what we're saying and you're in the working um, and you and Dr. Holiday, um, how this might be a, a stretch of a question, but you know, how do you measure success then? Right. Right. If we are focused on how they learn and learning with them and it's not based on results driven, performance driven. Um, sure. Um, that, that's a fantastic question, particularly in a world like sport where 
the you know the ultimate outcome is the dollar. We need people to perform because it's a money making industry. And ba- you know, baseball can measure so many things. I mean, it's there's just a plethora of statistics to be able to say this player is here, this player is worth this much. Um, my response to that question would be, how are we measuring learning? Here's what I think we need to do, and this isn't, and I think we're we're starting to do this in baseball, and I think in sport in general, we measure the outcome, we measure the we measure the transfer test. So if it's hockey, if it's basketball, if it's baseball, whatever it is, if it's soccer, the transfer test is the game. We're always measuring, creating analytics and statistics based on the transfer piece. How are they doing in the game? And that makes all the sense in the world. What we're missing though is measuring the acquisition piece. And if you were to run a motor learning study, so if you go to Google Scholar, look at any motor learning study, there's an acquisition phase where a person comes into the lab, they learn the task, and then they leave. And they come back a day or two days later, and they'll do a retention test, which is basically the same test, and then they'll do a transfer test, something that's just a little different. Well, that's how we measure learning. What we need to measure the acquisition piece. So we need to start measuring practice. We need to find ways to measure practice, whether that's military-wise or sporting-wise, and then see how those line up with the transfer test, which is the game. Because when we do that, then we can truly see, hey, where is learning happening and where is it not happening? Because right now, we have no measure of learning, uh, to answer your question. We purely have outcome results that are, it's a transfer test, but there's no correlation, correlational data before that. So we need to get into this habit of measuring practice and finding ways to measure that um, daily. I know Dean Smith with North Carolina used to do this back in the day with his basketball team and they were pretty darn good. So that'll be my answer to your question is we need to find ways to measure practice and learning. And then the last piece of this, which I'd be interested to get your take on this too, coming from a sports psych background. Um, the last couple of years, I've been pushing around this idea with, with my team of finding ways to measure the mental game. And it, in baseball, let's think about something like what is a pitcher's opponent batting average after he gives up a home run. So he gives up a home run, bang, like obviously no pitcher ever wants to give up a home run, but he does this. Well, what's his, how are batters doing? How's the next batter doing that comes up after he gives up a home run? Is he hitting, are they hitting 600 against him or are they hitting a buck 50? Well, that it's not a one-to-one correlation, but you could be saying, Hey, what's going on here? Like batters are smoking you after you give up a home run. Where'd your mind at? You know, what is your, do you have a refocus cue for an infielder? What is, what are they doing at the plate after they make an error in the field? You know, do they go from being a 320 hitter to a 220 hitter after they make an error and understanding that batting average, we know there are better statistics to measure the success than that. I'm just throwing that out here right now. So finding ways to maybe create conversations about the mental game based on these statistics. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. So on the last thing you said about um, a, a athlete's maybe comp, like composition when they see something that just happened and how does it affect them? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, I'm just going to go on a weird thought train here. So we almost um, teach athletes, Hey, we don't want you to think on emotion um, because then you won't be rational in, in your performance, whatever. But also at the same time, we also, teach them to leverage their emotion because emotions are one of the strongest drivers to motivate performance. Absolutely. So I don't really know what the right answer is. Mm -hmm. I would say maybe pregame 
and post game could be more emotion focused, right? What emotions are you leveraging going into that performance? And maybe within the game, you stay rational focused where you don't let um, every small result affect the way you think about what the next step is going to be, right? Because that means it's you're coming out of focus, right? And you're almost doing future tense situations, right? You're simulating what's going to happen if I mess up or because of what just happened. Um, that is that is just where my head's at. No, I, I love that. And just bringing that awareness to the present moment. And it sounded like there was maybe even some, uh, some acceptance commitment there of, yep, this happened. This is the emotion you're feeling. We're going to recognize, accept it, you know, non-judgmental thinking, and we're going to focus on the task at hand, be where our feet are. That sounds wonderful. Yeah. And something uh, on this line that I, that I love seeing in sport is when you watch um, MMA fights, you see in between rounds, like you could have a someone could have a terrible round um but the coach will say hey this happened you need to do you need to do x y and z and they do a phenomenal job of resetting um and i find that fascinating and i would love to test that realm but yeah i don't know how i would do that well no and i I love what you just said there too and i especially love the fact and you know with the mma coaches are i'm assuming that they're they're talking to them in between the rounds but during the rounds they're not doing a lot of instructing they're maybe just providing motivation but then they had a tough round. They come on, you know, they come out of the ring and they're giving them a goal to focus on because, you know, we know that our focus follows our goals, not the other way around. So it's, Hey, this happened. This is what needs to happen to make the correction and giving them that very specific external goal. Now the focus is driven by that goal. That's really fascinating. Yeah. I, I rarely hear, um, them trying them saying the coach is saying in between rounds, like, Hey, let's stop doing, or let's stop this person doing X, Y, and Z. But it's more of, hey, what adjustments are we going to make? Fantastic. Right? What, is an, what is the thing you have to correct, right? Um, and they do give certain uh, external cues, like physical cues of what move is to execute. But sure. yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And no, so back to what you were saying earlier about mm-hmm. the acquisition of learning. Yep. Um, is Do you know of anyone who's kind of putting that uh, thought model to test? Um, it, it has, I've come I've read several books. It's happened here and there throughout history. I think I mentioned, you know, Dean Smith, uh, famous Paul fame, uh, North Carolina basketball coach. He would, he found ways to measure everything in practice. Everything was a competition for him. I'm sticking with North Carolina too. I'm Anson Dorrance. He's the, he's been the women's soccer coach in North Carolina for going on 30 years now. I think he's won 22 national championships. He's arguably the most successful coach in college history. Everything for him is a competition. He measures everything. He finds a way to measure in practice. Some of them are more objective data, which is, you know, how fast are you running? They put the sensors on them. You know, how many miles did you run in practice? Some of it's a little more subjective. I noticed that you weren't really giving it your all here, but he finds ways to grade, grade them on a Likert scale. So it is happening um, in the in the baseball world. I know that we're trying to get toward that, especially with I think that's the beauty, too, about now that sport is really getting heavy into the tech side and the data side uh, and the analytics side. Well, let's use it for stuff outside of outside of the game. And so because baseball has all these different ways to measure exit velocity off a bat or spin rate from a bet from a pitch. Let's use those in practice and let's see how this drill affects spin rate in practice and let's see if there's transfer in the game. So it's starting to happen. 
I think because the tech in all sports is just getting so sophisticated, we now have more objective measurements for it. And I think people are starting to utilize it. We just haven't had the capability uh, until recently. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I feel like data statistics in terms of the mental side just hasn't improved uh, that much and compared to like all the physical measurements. Right, um, right. And it'd be fun if we could find a way to, to leverage that. Like I mentioned, can we just come up and I think one of our analytics guys with the Pirates was able to give me some kind of rough sketches of like pitchers. I think it was their uh, what happened after they walked a, a batter. And there were a couple pitchers that, wow, they're, they really didn't do well after they walked a batter. Their opponent batting average went up. Um, they were more likely to walk the next guy. And we actually, that led us to some interesting conversations with those two or three pitchers. So I think it just comes with trying to be creative with whatever sport it is to try to find these, let's call them, quote, objective data points, but they're not totally objective. What they are is meant to engage a conversation with that athlete because maybe they don't even recognize where their mind is when these certain scenarios are happening. Right, because a lot of uh, intervention, evidence-based evidence-based interventions right now are uh, really focused on self-reported questionnaires, yes. post and pre-game, whatever, right? It's, it's rarely live in that spot. You're rarely getting data live. Um, I want to move forward a little bit. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, how do you continue to learn and continuously add uh, education into your practice right now? Um. I think for me, that's that's where I enjoy coming from a more of an academic background. I'm not saying that there's no not in any way the only way to do it. But, you know, my training, my formal training was to be an academic. And so I still have access to several professors that are in the field that I reach out to. Um, for me, I try to seek out information that disagrees with my way of thinking. Maybe not 100 percent, but we know the perils of confirmation bias and so trying to look at research and data, books, podcasts, whatever it is, that maybe I, I see the title, I read about it, huh, I'm not totally sold on that, let's hear about it. And for me, that's kind of my philosophy of how I grow myself and how I try to add more to the Pittsburgh Pirates. That idea of, um, I think it was a social scientist back in the early 20th century named Karl Popper, who talked about empirical falsification. And big, big <laughs> that's a $10 that. word. Oh, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll uh, dissect it here. It, it's that idea. And, and we fall into it very easily in, in the sport world and the athletics world in general is it's really easy to prove our own theories. Correct. If you, you know, just go about trying to prove your theory is right. Well, we'll fall into confirmation bias and we'll find ways in which it worked. But if you do everything you can, you being the general, you to prove your theory wrong, so, okay, I believe that this drill X works. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to find ways where I can prove that it doesn't work. And the more that I try to hammer holes in that argument and it still stands up to scrutiny, then I know that I have something here. Um, you know, I've, I've heard uh, we talk about T work in, in, in baseball where players will put a ball on a T and they'll hit it. It's a stationary ball. It's not moving anywhere. And Personally, I don't find that to be a very effective drill for learning. I will bring that up to coaches. And I heard one coach tell me, well, it was good enough for Tony Gwynn, who's one of the best hitters of all time. He's a Hall of Famer. Well, it's good enough for him, so it's good enough for my athletes. 
I'm sorry, I don't think that's a convincing argument. That's confirmation bias. You're just trying to prove your theory right because one person happened to be successful by doing it. So I think trying to prove myself wrong by seeking out information that disagrees with me is how I continue to grow myself. Yeah, that's a lot of that is um, really thoughtful and confirmation bias. You know, that's kind of like, hey, we see what we're looking for mm-hmm. and we're going to confirm that. And whatever evidence we get that supports our belief, we're going to hold on to and evidence that doesn't, you know, we let go. Um, it's almost like people get fixated on their ideas and they get married to their ideas and they yeah. don't let it go. Right. Exactly. Um, so and- can you. Yeah. Oh, no, no, please continue. My apologies. Uh, I was just going to ask, like, you know, what is your overall philosophy then about the way you operate with Pittsburgh Pirates? Um, the way that I my, my kind of underpinning philosophy here, it's it's based on vulnerability. And I don't want to just make that a catch all word for obviously Brene Brown is incredible. The work that she's done within that. I tr- have tried to cultivate this mindset where I enjoy being wrong. Um, because it, there's a, a really great story I heard, um, about there's this zoologist that worked for Oxford back in the day, this is in the 1950s. And for the longest time, he was kind of like the Dr. Bernie holiday of zoology. He did not believe that this certain mechanism within our cells existed, the, the Golgi tendon apparatus, but he didn't believe it existed. He couldn't see any convincing evidence for it. He goes his entire career. So come toward the end of his career at Oxford, Cambridge, they had this um, weekly, they would have visiting professors come in and they would talk to the department. So this one week, this American professor came in, this young professor, and he gave, according to the story, the most convincing argument that this mechanism in our cells exists. And everybody in the audience knows that this old professor, the guy that just, you know, he's a rock star in zoology is here and he knows he doesn't believe it. The story goes that this old professor gets up, walks to the front of the stage with tears in his eyes, hugs this professor, this American professor, and says, I wish to thank you. I've been wrong for 25 years. So just that beauty of being wrong and thinking, I mean, how how freeing it is to like be able to say, yeah, I was wrong. I don't always have to have my hands up and my dukes up ready to fight for my, my ideas. And when we think about the temporality of being wrong, the moment that we admit that we're wrong, we immediately become right. And so for me, it's being like enjoying when I'm wrong, because that means I've learned something. And I think, and, and it's one thing to hold on to our value system, our principle system, our belief system. That's not what I'm referring to here. I'm talking about our ideas and our theories about the way that things work. The more that we can say that maybe we were wrong or we misinterpreted something, then we learned and we grew. And that's the only way we get better. If I'm still teaching mental skills with the pirates, hopefully I'm with them five years from now as I am today, that's not good. Um, I think as I kind of put a pin on this conversation, on this diatribe here, I think Jim Harbaugh said, if you don't like change, you'll like irrelevancy even less. So if we're still doing things the same way we were two years ago, we're already out of date. So for me, that's where I come in the vulnerability to want to grow and be wrong. Yeah. I mean, uh, the basis of science is proving the past theory is wrong. Exactly. That is improvement. That is progress. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I love your answer. And I, th- and I think it shows a lot of uh, maturity, right? A lot of people, I feel like, are, re- are really insecure to admit that they are wrong. Sure. And it, the freedom part. Done yeah. Good. 
<laughs> and the freedom part that you're saying is uh, makes total sense. Uh, if you're secure with knowing that the information you received is is correcting you, then you are free, right? Um, there's a sense of freedom to that. So, yeah, were you going to say there, something? Well, there, there, there absolutely, there absolutely is. That's all. There absolutely is. It just it feels great to not have to worry about wearing the body armor all the time. Yeah, I'm sure there's uh, way less pressure. Um, so, you know, along these lines, uh, how do you measure your own success with a team? Um, I measure it based on the organic nature in which people talk to me about mental skills and learning. Um, it's one thing for me to say, hey, I want to do a 15-minute session on visualization with the guys in AA today during the season. And of course those times have to happen. That's great. And certainly the fact that the organization is open to that, I think speaks more to the work that Dr. Holiday has done than myself. But the more that I'm around and I just find myself in conversations with players about movies, about, you know, their partner, about their family, about hunting, about fishing. And then the more open they tend to be. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves in a conversation on the mental game. I think that's my own informal way of measuring my success with players and with coaches. It's how often do I find an innocuous conversation turning into something important? Yeah. And um, I know we touched upon, uh, upon like how do you measure success before and um, we're doing it again. And I really like what you just said, because oftentimes I remind myself to think in the same framework. Uh, mm -hmm. When I started my work in the military, it was really intimidating at first, right? You see people wearing uniforms all of a sudden. You're like, what the hell? How do I behave here? <laughs> uh, I think the sooner I realized that everybody wearing a uniform is still just a human being first, sure. the easier it is for me to just connect with them uh, on a human being to human being level and then eventually get to the mental skills part. Definitely. Um, right. There's always that phrase of, you know, People don't care what you know until they know that you care, right? Um, so uh, on a personal note, um, have you ever had a moment of just absolute failure that helped you be successful later on? Yeah. Um, many times throughout my life, I will kind of, I'll give a specific example with the Pirates, but I think for me, Every level I was at athletically, I failed at tremendously when I first got there. And I think I, I was never great at anything. So that just that constant push in the Sisyphean boulder up the hill and they had to roll back onto me, I think throughout my life was helpful. Um, with the Pirates, though, so we uh, this is somewhat recently we, we had a change in leadership and the leadership really wanted um, us to be more. Uh, giving control to the players, like having them take control of their own career. Fantastic. I'm all in on it. And so with the mental conditioning department, we started doing these optional sessions um, for spring training last year. So optional mindfulness sessions, optional visualization sessions, we would shoot out text emails, however else we could communicate with that to the players and the coaches. And we were starting to get a good, the snowball was starting to pick up more and more people starting to show up each morning. I'm running it on a Wednesday. And we've been doing well. And first, I just was like, oh, well, I don't need to send out. If people know this is happening. I don't need to send out an email or a text. I'm good. Like, now they're taking control of your career. It was, it was me being very ego-oriented. 
And I show up to, I show up to Pirate City and, and, you know, Dr. Holiday says, hey, did you shoot the, the textile last night? And I said, no, I didn't. I thought we were doing okay. And I could just, and he was like, okay. Um, <laughs> he didn't really say anything, but he said, all right, let's see how it goes. Like two people showed up. And, you know, he, and Bernie being Bernie, he, he brought me in and said, hey, I know, I, I, I know where your head was at, but we're really, we're really trying to pick up a lot of steam here. And there's nothing wrong with shooting out a text. Um, we can always be politely annoying. And that's my word, not his. And what that really spoke to me was I despise confrontation and conflict, not in a good way. I run away from it. And so because I didn't want to be the pushy MC guy, I didn't want to be the pushy mental skills coach of create another text from Andy. Yes, we got mindfulness this morning. I was so afraid of how the players would view me and that they'd be like, oh, wow, another one of these things that I didn't consider the whole goal of we're trying to, we have a new philosophy with mental skills this year. I need to put aside the fact that maybe a player might be a little irritated because they looked at a text and now I'm thinking there's conflict between us and look out for the good of the mental conditioning team. And that was a big moment for me. It doesn't sound like a huge fall in my face, but it showed me just how ego oriented I was getting because I wanted the players to like me that much. Well, that's, that's powerful. I mean, that's, that's a massive uh, moment of like maturity and growth, right? Like not caring about all the um, insecurity thoughts of X, Y, and Z that you thought of, but really just honing down on what the mission was. That's it. Um, and I, I didn't, I did not focus on the mission. I focused on myself because I was so afraid of confrontation and that's, that's a weakness. And that's just me not being afraid to be, that's me being afraid to be that kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, you know, continuing on the personal note, why are you not on social media? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I can, I can give you the initial reason. And then I think I just wanted to be a contrarian. I think too, that, <laughs> Twitter didn't really become a big deal till several years after I had stopped social media. So I graduated from college in 2011. The initial reason that I got rid of it was my senior year when I would have pro scouts come up and talk to me and they would say, Hey, do you have Facebook? Yes, I have Facebook. Well, is there anything like incriminating on there? It's like, no, nothing like that. They said, well, just to be safe, you should either think of really, taking your pictures down or deleting it all together. And once again, this was before social, it was 2010, 2011, so it was on the cusp. Wasn't what it is now. And at that point, I'm a senior at a small division one school. I want any chance I can for a team to call my name on draft day. So I said, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll delete my Facebook. So I deleted it. And then, you know, I was in a relationship at the time and I just realized that things got a little better. There weren't all these questions and stuff about why did the cheat post on your wall or what about this and that? And then as time went along, I just started functioning without it. And then truth be told, as I've gotten older and as social media has gotten bigger, I've probably just leaned into the idea of enjoying being a contrarian. However, there's a lot of cons to not having social media, um, particularly as, you know, as we get older, move on with our careers. So it's something I'm going to need to bite the bullet on and just recognize that it's something I need to do. But that's the initial reason was I wanted to get drafted. And they said, if they told me to, <laughs> if they told me I need to walk on my head for two minutes before they left the room, I would have done that to get drafted. So that was the initial reason. Right. Right. And, and I'm kind of on the same boat with you. Um, I know I'm more new school and you're kind of old school here. <laughs> I don't really love being on Instagram um, or I don't even have a Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um but it's just the, I think 
when I think about it, I want our field to grow. Right. And I have to, I have to do my part in some semblance. Um, so, and you're a great personality. You're a great person to this field. So I want to encourage you to do something. You know what, <laughs> what, what you just said too, um, I'll pull this full circle. The situation, and I don't know if you did this on purpose, but the situation you just described is kind of a, a bigger picture of the story I just described where I fell on my face where, because I don't want to hurt people's feelings. I don't want to be the conflict guy, like always oh, pushing stuff on social media because I'm afraid of that conflict. It's no different than that story with Dr. Holiday and the pirates that I don't want to be known as this person, but I'm not looking out for the mission. And for us, it's pushing the field of sports psychology because we've got a lot of great momentum now. So that's it. I appreciate that. You, you really brought that full circle for me. And now, thank you. That's that PhD working for you, Andy, <laughs> connecting <laughs> the thoughts where I can't. Well, see, sometimes it works. Sometimes it just makes me seem like uh, I'm thinking way too hard about some pretty innocuous stuff. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so lastly, you know, I, I think you've done a, quite a few interviews now. Um, has there any been any questions that you wish people asked you uh, on an open place like a podcast? I I actually say no, and I think that that speaks a lot to the people that I've spoken with, like yourself. Um, I know we have a mutual friend in Emily Elrod, uh, and I think that speaks a lot to our field that we have these kind of people that are asking these kind of difficult questions. So the fact that you asked, "What's the time when you fell on your face? Where do I fill my tank up as far as information? How do I grow?" I think those are the kind of questions we need to ask everybody. So uh, it's been fantastic so far. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, well, that's all I got for me. Uh, thank you for your time, Andy. And, and hopefully we can stay connected moving forward. And um, I encourage you to get on social media. And when you do, I'll celebrate your <laughs> entrance. Uh, all right. You may be the straw that breaks the, camel, that break the camel's back here. I guess I got I to gotta go for it here in the next little bit. All right. Thank you.